Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite. Get ready for all the craziness of small business. It's exactly that craziness that makes it exciting and totally unbelievable. Small Business Radio is now on the air with your host, Barry Moltz. Well, thanks for joining this week's radio show. Remember, this is the final word in small business. For those keeping track, this is now show number 728. It's sponsored by Truly Financial, banking that puts money back in your business. Get a free copy of my new book, Change Masters, how to actually make the changes you already know you need to make by signing up for a free account. Go to www.trulyfinancial.com slash Barry. Well, I get sent a lot of business books, and this next one I just love because it focuses on the dumb mistakes that so many small business owners make. Ruth King is a profitability guru. She's the president of Business Ventures Corporation. Ruth has a passion for helping businesses get and stay profitable. She's especially proud of one small business owner who had $750,000 in revenues when, st- when Ruth started consulting with him. 16 years later, the business had grown at $10 million and was sold for $9 million cash. She's got a new book that's coming out in September. It's called 101 Dumb Financial Mistakes Business Owners Make and How to Avoid Them. Ruth, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Barry, for having me back. I I really appreciate it. Well, I have to tell you, I just love this book. I'm going through it. I'm just smiling the whole way because myself and so many small business owners, we make these dumb mistakes. And I want to see if we can rapidly go through some of them so we can give some advice. Sure. So the first one about general dumb mistakes, you talk about abdicating the financial responsibility, sorry, abdicating the responsibility for the financial side of the business. I see so many small business owners do that. Why do they do that? And what's the mistake? What can they do about it? Well, they think, okay, I've hired a bookkeeper. Now I don't have to worry about numbers anymore. Well, they delegate the day-to-day entering of debits and credits, bills, payments, and stuff like that. But they still have to review financial statements every single month and make sure that the bookkeeper is doing her job properly. When you abdicate the financial responsibility and say, I have a bookkeeper, you don't have to worry about it, that's what you get embezzled from because they know you don't care anymore and they write any check they want or do whatever they want and you never worry about it. So you still, day-to-day bookkeeping goes away, I agree, but you still have to look at the financial statements that your bookkeeper um, produces every month and make sure that they are accurate and ask questions if you don't understand anything. And in my experience, it's the amazing number of people that get stolen from in small business where their bookkeeper is doing something in their own self-interest. Of course. So I mean, it's, it's 
critical. So, so another dumb general mistake you say is having the Mercedes Benz syndrome. I assume that's just not owning a car. No, it's actually taking personal expenses out of your business. So um, the story behind it is a guy was interested in investing in this company and he found that the owner was going to use part of the investment for a $2,200 Porsche lease. And he said, I'm not investing because he's using my money for his personal things. He calls it the Mercedes Benz syndrome. So what you really need to be doing is separating business from personal always. So business expenses stay in the business. Your personal expenses stay personally. Have two separate checking accounts. Never the twain shall cross. And if you want to buy a Porsche, buy it personally. Don't buy it out of the business. Or, or, or lease it. Or Mercedes-Benz. Yeah, whatever. Another mistake you mentioned is blindly accepting what your CPA reports your taxes. And so many of us do that. Why shouldn't we? Because CPAs are human and they make mistakes. And this one cost a business owner north of $10,000 because of a mistake that he made an assumption on and didn't bother to ask. Um, he assumed that a liability the company had when he started working with them was they loaned from the owner and it was a loan from another business. And so it always went as, li as owner's liability until I caught it. And so it ended up. They're calling you now with their dumb mistakes. Yeah, no kidding. Sorry about that. I forgot to put my phone on silent. But anyway. Um, so don't accept what the what CPA says blindly. Yeah. What he ended up doing is he said, okay, this, this receivable is a personal receivable, and it was a company receivable. And nobody actually questioned it until I looked at it. And then for 10 years, it had been on their, on their tax returns that way. So the only way around it is to pay the money back i.e. pay the payroll taxes and everything else like that, because if he was going to sell the business, he'd have to deal with it anyway. So he, you know, it was a very, very expensive mistake for him. All right. Mistake number eight is ignoring your weekly cash flow report. I don't even think people just ignore it. They don't produce one. And they don't look at their financial statement, I mean, excuse me, their bank statements every single day online. That's the most critical thing. You know, every week you should know what came in, what went out and what you expect to happen the following week. And that is a weekly cash flow report so that, you know, um, if you need to make payroll the following week and there's not enough money in the checking account, you have to do something very, very quickly before next Thursday or next Friday comes about. Cause it's not about sales. It's about the cash flow. N mistake number 11, not billing. I find this happens with so many small yeah. business owners. They don't bill at the end of the month, the end of the day, the end of the week, whatever it's supposed to be. Because for whatever reason, they don't get around to it and they're afraid to ask for money. Well, and they're also too busy to bill. They've got to do, they did the work. They finished their part of the agreement, whether it was in the contracted form or not. So the company or the customer has to pay, which is their part of the contract. You have to bill every single day or at the end, you know, at the end of the week or whatever else it is. It's better if you bill every day because the, if a project's done, you bill it the next day. And, and that way you get into that cycle and you make sure that everything you do gets filled. Mistake number 14, not asking employees to participate in the company financial goals. Most small business owners keep the financial goals of the company a secret. Why is that a bad idea? Because then the employees think that you're made of money because <laughs> they have no clue. <laughs> they really don't. They think, oh, he can afford it. Doesn't matter. He, you know, They don't have any idea what the costs are. And if you include them in the financial goals of the company, guess what? If things are going not the right way, you have you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 
heads going in the right directions and trying to figuring out this particular problem. And more than like, excuse me, more often than not, it, the problem gets resolved with somebody who you never thought of came up with a great idea to solve the problem. But share financial, share where you are. I love to share bonuses at the end of the year. The, everybody who's on your team, your employees, helped you produce the profits. Give them a little piece back. It's amazing oh. what happens when they get to share. But Ruth, a lot of small businesses are afraid that the employee is going to realize how much money they're making, the owner, and not the employee. And I'm like, well, that's still okay because if the employee wants to make more money, they have to go start their own business and take that risk. Yeah. Well, you know, what you can end up doing is put all of the compensation in one line. Mm-hmm. When you share everything, you don't have to share, you know, Sally's salary and John's salary and the owner's salary, put office compensation in one line and that's everybody. So nobody knows what anybody's making at that point. All right. Mistake number 26, not knowing where your leads are coming from. I find this happens all the time. People are doing all this marketing and they never ask. So how'd you hear about us? Yeah. Or why did you happen to call us today? simply because you need to know that your marketing dollars are paying for themselves. If you don't track your leads, you have no idea whether the money you're spending on marketing is paying for itself or not. And as small business owners, we really and truly have to watch our cash. And if we're spending $1,000 on marketing and our gross margin is 40%, we need to generate $2,500 to break even on that marketing expense. Without tracking leads, you never know. Mistake number 28, not tracking salespeople's closing rate. Again, I see this all the time. I want to know how many leads came in and what percent they closed and how they compare it to other salespeople or other methods in the organization. Why don't folks do this? Because they're afraid to tell somebody who's burning leads that they're burning leads. You know, if, if there are really smart sales managers out there that give the people who are closing more, more leads. And the people who are not closing as much are getting starved. And then they want to know why you're not getting the leads while well, you're not closing them. And then they'll, if one of two things is going to happen. They're going to leave, which may not be a bad idea. Of course. Or number two, they're going to say, how do I get better at what I do? And if they are in that case, then you work with them to help them improve their closing ratio so that they can get up where everybody else is and everybody can participate equally in the leads at that point. Dumb financial mistake number, mistake number 29, not firing a customer. We stay with people we shouldn't be working all the time. I want to fire them, send them over to my biggest competitors so it weighs them down. Yeah. <laughs> there are many reasons to fire a customer. Number one, obviously not paying of bills. Number two, always wanting a discount. Number three, if it's unsafe to work there. And there are situations, especially in construction, where flights are unsafe. You do not want to send any employment employee into an unsafe environment. And if you can never make them happy, and why are you doing work with them? So those are the reasons that I use. You know, obviously, everybody thinks about, well, they didn't pay their bill. I'm not going to um, you know, work with them anymore. But you know, a lot of times, somebody who always wants a discount, too, until they get happy or complains all the time, then you're in a situation where you can also fire that particular customer, too. Um, if you do that and you fire all the obnoxious ones, generally your net profit goes up the following year because you can right. have the time, time spent. And, and again, it's not the sales from the customer. It's the profit from a customer. All right. Rule number 31, ignore, and this is Ruth's rule one, how much revenue has to be, has to be generated by a direct cost employee. Why don't people do this? Why don't try to figure out what that person, a person's making me, don't I? Yeah, 
Absolutely. You know, people say I want X number of dollars an hour or I want X number of dollars a salary. Terrific. You do Ruth's rule number one and figure out how much revenue they have to generate to earn that salary or earn that hourly rate. And either they can do it or they can't. So if they can do it and they are doing it, guess what? They're worth that particular salary or hourly rate. If they can't do it, you have to, this is the tough conversation, drop their hourly or their salary to where they are producing enough revenue to pay for themselves. Because why do you have employees who aren't paying for themselves? It doesn't make sense to me. Um, Bottom line is you got to be profitable even with your employees. And this is the biggest mistake people do with selling services, right? They're selling stuff for a hundred bucks, but they're paying the person to perform the service 80 bucks. It just doesn't work. Not at all. So number 34, and again, unfortunately, I see this all the time, not having a buy-sell agreement with partners, even if the partners are family members. I find that good fences make good neighbors. Absolutely. And, you know, you think you're your brother or your sister, you don't need one. But suppose, you know, in this particular case, I think the brother, the sister got on drugs and was starting to drain the checking account. Thankfully, they had a buy-sell agreement and they kicked her out. What if they hadn't had that? What would have happened? Everybody should have a buy-sell agreement. I don't care whether it's your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your aunt, your uncle, or the guy who is just investing money in your business. You've got to have a way that you can get out or they can get out. So I was also surprised by number 35, not knowing why you're in business. Most people say they're in business to make money. Is that not a good reason? If you're in business only to make money, you probably are not going to be in business very long because money is a short-term motivator. The long-term motivators are I'm taking care of my customers. I am um, doing some really good things for my employees. I'm using the, the profits from this business to do X, Y, Z, um, and, and those types of things. So money is a very short-term motivator. Yeah, in the beginning, you absolutely have to have money for cash flow and everything else like that. But as the company gets more and more and more profitable – you really have to look at, you know, why are you doing this? What makes you get up in the morning? And I promise for 99% of the population, it really isn't the money. It's what the money can do. I can go out and teach. I can go and keep a roof over the heads of my employees, or I take really good care of my customers so they can do X. All right, now we're on to pricing dumb mistakes. Number 36, pricing incorrectly. I find this happens all the time. Why are people doing that? Because they don't understand overhead costs. You made the comment before, you know, they charge somebody $100 an hour and they pay the guy or the girl $80. Well, guess what? Their overhead cost is probably more than more than $20. So they are losing for every hour that they're billing. So it's not only the direct cost of the person or the product or whatever else it is. It's all the overhead to support the business, which is the thing that's generally not taken into consideration. It has to pay a piece of the rent, has to pay a piece of the light bulb, person who answers the phone, et cetera. And that's all overhead. And whenever you price something, you have to consider overhead into what you're pricing to make sure that you're pricing profitably. I found that dumb mistake number 37 was really interesting, not realizing that growth masks pricing issues. Correct. If you are growing really, really fast and you're not looking at your profit and loss statement, you're only looking at how much cash is in your checking account, the project that finishes or the work that gets finished um, starts the next one, starts the next one, starts the next one, starts the next one. And so you never see if that job was unprofitable so or that work was unprofitable or if you have an unprofitable year. So in this particular case, there was a, a company I worked with, and they grew extremely fast, stopped growing, started having cash flow problems. And the long story short is they were losing a nickel for every dollar they took in the door for 12 years. Wow. Because they were growing. 
Well, not, not, not a good way to do it. Number 45, and I was very surprised with this, so I really want to get your perspective, which is paying commissions based on gross margins. Why is that a bad idea? Because you can have two gross margins, one where the company made money and one where the company did not make money. And that's the overhead issue again. So it really and truly is important that you really look at the bottom line, not necessarily the gross profit line, which is you know gross margin is gross profit divided by sales. So you can have a, a gross margin that is exactly the same, but when overhead is taken into consideration and how many hours were used to create whatever that project was, um, you could be losing your butt. And why would you let a salesperson win and the company not? Um, I also see this when salespeople want to lower the price so that they can get the job. They do not care that the company doesn't make money. They care only about getting their commission. Number 52, not raising prices when costs increase. I see this, especially now people are afraid they're going to lose customers, yeah. but they have no choice. They have no choice. You know, you've got to be profitable. I mean, if you're going to survive the long term, you have to be profitable. Um, in one of the industries that I work in, the prices literally went up 30% last year. You had to raise your prices almost 30% just to stay even. So if you, you know, if your costs go up and it's not because you're not being productive, but like your raw material costs go up, then you have to raise your prices just to stay even. And what I do is I raise my prices every year just because so people get used to it. Mm -hmm. Just because. All right. The last one I have is, and I think this happens so often, actually I have two more. One is not recognizing that your balance sheet is more important than your P&L. People never look at the balance sheet. Yeah, because they don't understand what it's telling them. And basically what your balance sheet tells you is, are you profitable? And if people think their P&L tells them that's whether they're profitable, but that's only for a specific period of time, a month, a quarter, a year. Your balance sheet tells you true profitability as the company, as it's going on, getting more profitable or less. It tells you whether you can pay your bills, whether you're having a collection problem or heading for one. It tells you whether you're taking on too much debt, too much inventory for those companies who have inventory. And the reality is, is your balance sheet is much more important than your P&L. And once you understand how to look at it, it's easier than P&L. And number 59, the worst one of all, in my opinion, not collecting your accounts receivable. If you're going to do the work, get paid for it. People are afraid to ask for money. I mean, we, we talked about that earlier. It's like, okay, you did your part of it. Then guess what? They have to pay you because that's their commitment for you doing the work, providing the products, whatever else it is. If something is 30 days old and your terms are net 30 on that 31st day, if you have not gotten paid, it's a friendly phone call. When, when might we submit? Yeah. When might, when might we expect a check? And at that point, they know squeaky wheel gets the grease and they're going to put you up front before they might pay somebody else who doesn't call them for 90 days, 120 days. They don't call. They think, hey, they don't need the money. If they can use you as a bank, they will. The title of the book is called 101 Dumb Financial Mistakes. Dumb Financial Mistakes Business Owners Make and How to Avoid Them. Ruth, amazing, amazing book. Where can people get in touch with you? Uh, the best place to get me is RuthKing.info. That has all. That site has everything on it that um, they can get a hold of me and all the things that I do. It's just go to RuthKing.info. Ruth, I appreciate you doing the lightning round. This is AM820 WCPT in Chicago. We'll be right back. I just hate the way big banks treat small businesses. They're always a gotcha. High fees, no rewards, minimum balances. So what's in it for you? Now comes a bank that gets small businesses. 
Truly Financial gives you a corporate Visa card, a checking account, and up to 2.5% cash back on every single dollar your business spends. That's why I'm partnering with them to bring you a special offer. Go to trulyfinancial.com slash Barry and learn about how you can get all these benefits for your company and get a free copy of my new book, Change Masters, How to Make the Changes You Already Know You Need to Make When You Open an Account. So go to trulyfinancial.com slash Barry and truly spelled T-R-U-L-Y and get a free copy of my book, Change Masters. Stick around to get your small business unstuck. More of Small Business Radio with Barry Moles now on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk. For the small business owner, whether you're talking to customers, your bank or an investor, it's all about the story that you're telling. And my next guest knows how to tell them. Precious L. Williams, a 13-time National Elevator Pitch Champion. She's also been featured on Shark Tank, CNN, Wall Street Journal, Forbes Magazine, Black Enterprise Magazine, Essence, and the movie Leap. Her current clients include Microsoft, LinkedIn, Google, a whole bunch of others. Precious, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So so what's a national pitch champion? Because I remember when I used to be on MSNBC's Your Business, people used to pitch us to do elevator pitches. But is there actually a competition? Yes, there are so many there are so many competitions going on right now. And so if you are an entrepreneur or getting ready to be an entrepreneur, these are great ways to raise money and visibility for your company in addition to funds. And I was on your business with JJ Ramberg February 9, 2012 for the elevator pitch segment. And that is when I realized that I'm really good at <laughs> So yes. So you can win prize money and everything. And so as a 13-time national pitch champion, I was able to win $160,000 for my companies in addition to the $500,000 that I had been pitching for in different uh, ways. <laughs> wow. So, so first of all, why do people have a hard time pitching? Why are they have a hard time doing the storytelling of their company that makes it something interesting? Well, I think the reason why people have such a hard time is number one, they think they need to sound like all, they need to sound like someone else. Number I gotta two, sound like George Clooney, or uh, right. one or of those guys, right? Or, or Brad or Pitt. They, they, I use Chanel number nine. You should too. Yeah, <laughs> I can't with you, Barry. <laughs> and number two, they think that the story that they have doesn't match up to what the social media stories that they're seeing. That everything was perfect. Very few people are willing to say, "Hey." Um, I was struggling with this and realized there was a whole market that was dealing with this and it wasn't easy to get started. But once I started getting traction, people started to see that my vision actually came to life. And a lot of people start from nothing and build. And no one wants to say that that's the way they started. And number three, who really knows how to package, position and pitch themselves? The stories you're telling yourself is not how others will see you. And so you're worried about all of these things and how do you craft a pitch that's going to help you. So if you go to networking events, how many of us have heard, my name is this and this is what I do and nobody cares. Nobody cares. Do you know nobody, nobody cares? Mostly. They're not even listening. Reason. They're not even no. listening. They're, they're thinking about what they're going to say. Right. And so when you take it to another level of how can I let them know what's in it for them by listening to me? So what if I said to you, Barry, you want to know what a money resides? I want to know what? Do you want to know where the money resides? Right. Yeah, I do. Of course. I want to know where the money resides. So it resides in creating a killer pitch that pays and slays. 
you want to be able to slay all competition with a killer pitch, an elevator, media, investor, sales, speaker, or interview pitch. So what's the key, Precious? Is the key to say what's in it for them as they're listening? The key is you want to be able to captivate and titillate so you move to the next stage of the journey. When you're at networking events, you want people, even if they're not taking your course, they're looking you up because you've said something that may not be for them, but it may be for someone that they love. And they are like, oh, I don't need it. But she said exactly what the problem is. She has the solution for it. And she gave me her secret sauce that, that puts her heads and tails above everyone else. See, you, only, you want to be the only choice that matters. So what's in it for them? How you truly understand their problem from their perspective. And that's these, I just want to help you manifest. Nobody cares about that. <laughs> if you want to make money, you want to get clients, you want to be able to get media attention, you want to be able to sell your books, you have to be able to understand what the problem is from your target market's perspective in their language, how you are the only solution and choice that matters, and give them a secret sauce and a little flavor and a call to action. That is what changes the game. I love when you say they, they don't care if you manifest this. Yeah, I manifested this house. No, no, no you bought it. You didn't manifest yes. it, right? So I, one of the things you said was really important. When you do the pitch, you really want to get them to the next stage. I find too many people try to get, when they do the pitch, they try to take them too many steps. Is that true? Come on now. Yes, yes, it is. It is very true. And the reason why is because we think they all want to be already at the finish line. Some people need a, everybody needs a foundation. And even with pitching. So if you do not know your target market, let me let me be honest with you, Barry. Most people see what other people are doing and want to speak to that audience. But Barry, what if I told you y'all are speaking to the wrong audience because those not there those people are saturated with those people. When I went into tech and financial services as a trainer, I realized that that they've never seen someone like me with my skill set and their challenges. They have big brains but don't know how to bring things down to lay language, layman's terms for the people that they want to sell this to. And so I can do that, right? And if you think about it, if you are trying to say, oh, well, six figures in six days, even if they made six figures in six days, which probably 99% of the time wouldn't happen, they still don't have a solid foundation that makes them attractive at that moment and on and on. So it's consistency, it's being persistent and understanding the target market you think you should be in is probably not the one you should be in. I'm a black woman. You know, people are like, oh, well, you can speak to ERGs, uh, employee research groups, or you can speak on DEIA. That is not my zone of genius. I work with sales teams. I work with entrepreneurs, speakers, and, um, and authors who are already successful but need to go to that next level. That's a totally different scenario than, oh, well, that's where you should be. You can't tell me where I should be if you've never been. So thanks. You know, Precious, I also find that uh, people have a really hard time summing up kind of what they're offering that in, in a form Maybe. that someone can remember, right? Because yeah. you really want to associate one phrase or one word with your brand. Like, what what's your brand known for? You know, it's when you think of Apple, right? You think of how it's innovation. When you think of UPS, you're thinking it's on time, whatever it is. But people get tell this complicated story, and I'm like, what does that person do? I have no idea. Because it just gets all too complicated. How do you simplify it so it sticks in someone's brain? So, you know, that comes from doing the research that also takes time. It also takes you bouncing this off of other people. So when I was called after my 13th win in, in a national pitch competition, 
uh, Robert Townsend and MC Light, the famous um, uh, rap rapsters from way back when, and Robert Townsend, great actor director by Heartbeats. They called me the killer picture master, and I'm looking at them like, Ooh. <laughs> that's even better than the pitch off. queen. I like the killer right, pitch said, master, the killer yeah, pitch master said, tonight. Come on, come on. So they said you slate all competition. Do you know I took that? So when people, <clears throat> if you notice when people refer to me, they'll say, oh, that's the killer pitch master. And I'll say now, AKA the pitch queen, was the name of my fourth book that came out last year. But the killer pitch master says so much and so little at one time. So how did so you- So much and so little. Precious, how'd you get here? Because in your bio, it says that, you know, when you realize that your childhood pain when locked the gift of pitching in you, tell us what's behind that. Well, what's behind my me me getting here really is I grew up in a very abusive home where my mother nearly murdered me when I was 12 years old. I grew up with a, a father who was and still is a drug addict. I did not get family support. And I always knew when I was watching Sally Jesse Raphael with Bill Donahue that I was going to be on television. I was going to have that kind of impact. But I'm in the hood. I'm in the, I'm in the hood. Nobody believes in me, but I believed. So when my grandparents stepped in to raise me at 15 years old, I was I was a very damaged child, but I had a gift. And my grandmother nurtured it, and she said, "People are good. people. When you speak, people listen." She said, "I need you to understand that does not happen very often." My first speaking engagement was before the mayor of the city of St. Louis. My second was before the governor of Missouri. So I had Barack Obama moments way back when. Went off to college on a full scholarship, law school on a full scholarship, became an attorney. Decided, you know what? hated it. I'm not doing this for 40 years. I'm not going to be bored. But what I am going to do is I want to launch this company, Curvy Girls Lingerie. No one believed in it. Per usual, I was 327 pounds. And people were like, no one's going to listen to a fat, black, non-Ivy League educated woman. Well, you know what I did to make them listen? I was on Your Business with J.J. Rambert. And they listened. When I when I finished that pitch and was invested in, they were like, she's serious. I'm like, yeah, just because you don't support me, you're not my client. The people who will support me are the, who I'm speaking to. And I think that's where people get it twisted. I'm not selling to everyone. I'm selling to the women who have this problem. You can't find things in Victoria's Secret. You can't find sexy stylish and fashion forward lingerie. And that's why Curvy Girls would be ultimate shopping experience. The whole thing of divas and plus size. Absolutely. And I think that's a big mistake that a lot of small business owners make. They try to sell to everyone because they're desperate to get sales rather than right. sell to a specific niche who really has the pain that they solve. Yes. Yes. And so that's why I told you about audiences. People will get out here and think you got to sell to everybody. No, if you niche down, did you hear that? I said I'm a killer pitch master. You don't hire me for motivational speaking. You don't hire me for leadership training. You hire me for the forms of pitching that I can that I can do for your sales team, whether it's tech, financial services. You hire me to be, you know, the keynote speaker. What am I going to bring to the table? 28 years of professional speaking. Excellent. I just turned 44. So very specific audiences know me because I have courted them and spoken to them and not the entire world. So if someone's trying to come up with their pitch, Precious, where do they start? What's the base of that before they hone it and practice it? So here are some of the things that I want you all to truly understand. The basic pitch has to have these ingredients. It's basic, but it doesn't have to be in this order. Who you are to what you do. Number three, who you specifically serve and why. Number four, what's the little secret sauce? Something that they wouldn't, that someone else can't say that they have that you have. 
That's why I'm a 13-time national elevator pitch champion, four-time number one best-selling author. You see how we weave that in there? And number five, what is your call to action? What do you want people to do immediately after hearing you, seeing your email, text message, or whatever form of communication? Be very specific with them. So those are five things that should be in a basic pitch. I, but y'all don't want basic from pressure. Y'all want killer. <laughs> well, let me ask you about basic first pressure before we get mm-hmm. we go to killer. You know, so how do you figure out what your secret sauce is? Mm. So the great thing about figuring out your secret sauce is, <clears throat> and this is one of the things I teach my clients, is you need to have 150 reasons why somebody should hire you, book you, uh, refer you. And the first five or 10, you could probably do on your own. Now start asking your trusted network. I did not say your family. I did not say your family. Trusted network. What do they see in you? What do, what, like what qualities they see in you that would be, that would bless someone else? And you'll eventually get to 150 reasons because those will help you when people object to you, right? But hearing how they see you would change how you see yourself. So growing up, I'm the ugly duckling. Nobody likes me. Nobody really wants to rock with me, right? That's what's saying. The minute I opened my mouth and started speaking to the type of people who could recognize that talent, that taught me people don't hire me just because I'm a pitch master. They hire me because of energy. People get excited when I hit that stage. They get excited when I'm teaching them about pitching and I can change somebody's pitch in literally two minutes after they speak, speak to me. I'm like, this is the way it should be. And this will sit you heads and tails above everyone else. I'm excited so right now. Just talk to you on the radio. Right. But how would I know it was my energy that really drew them? Because we think it's, the, the talent, and sometimes it's really that intangible, but they know it when they see you. So they hire me for the energy, and they love learning from me because I'm not a lecturer. I engage. I pull people from the audience, and I say, hey, you know, give us your pitch, and I'm going to show you how to break it down and put it back together. And they love it because they're getting taught in real time. So how do you the move from you basic so to— important. Go ahead, Precious. How do I move from basic to killer? Yeah, to basic well, to I killer want... because you're not because you're slay, now you want to slay people. Okay, so it's like the killer pitch was what slay all competition. Number one, <laughs> start off with a question, a startling statistic, or a quote. Why are you doing that? If you're at a, at a, at a, at a networking event, you're going to change the pattern of the board. So, like I said to you, where does the money reside? Where the money resides? And people are like, whoa. She didn't say who she is or whatever. No, because I want to interrupt your pattern. Now all eyes are on me. So now I'm about to go ham and cheese on you, right? Number two, I said this before, but I think it bears repeating. Speak to the challenge or problem your target market has in their language. So they hear and know you're speaking to them. So I think people want to know about pitching, but you know what people told me? Before I do pitching, can you teach me how to speak well publicly? Do you know how great of a thing that was? So I created hashtag Rockstar Confidence. I created Book and Busy Speakers Bootcamp because learning from them, now they can go into my pitch training. You see how that is? You start, you start listening to what their problems are, start asking them questions, and it will help you improve what you're doing in your craft. Number three, it, when you're giving your secret sauce, make sure it's stand out worthy, right? So are there a lot of coaches out there and they all sound the same? That's a shame. Y'all losing coins. But if you do, you talk about something that's so impressive, like, I don't know if you knew this, Barry, from 2017 to 2018, I was homeless on the streets of New York. I lost the love of my life. I lost my mind. People said I was over and done. After Shark Tank, that I, you'll never do it big. Well, you know what they didn't know that I would teach at Harvard, Harvard University, Columbia University. I would be hired by BMW, LinkedIn, Google, Microsoft, Federal Reserve Bank. And do you want to know why they hired me? 
Sure. It wasn't because of my story. They didn't know. They didn't know that I came from that. But if I can, if I hit rock bottom and use those tactics and techniques to get back to where I am right now and have people coming to me wanting to hire for me, that's how you know I'm serious about who I am. And I'm serious about women and men, especially of a certain age, knowing that the very things you think will hold you back will actually attract your audience to you. I'm vulnerable, but I'm also here to tell you I'm a superhero when it comes to pitching. And you all are superheroes in what you're doing. And you're playing yourself small, trying to sound like um, Tony Robbins or Les Brown or Mel Robbins or any of these people. Be you and take it into overdrive. They will love it. Precious, I got one more question with you. What role does practicing your pitch play in all this? Practicing your pitch is so important because if you don't, you're going to stumble, stumble, stumble all the time. So what I recommend for practicing Stand in front of your mirror, and if you have written it down, just start talking to yourself in the mirror and looking at yourself. The more you do that, you're going to do this hundreds, thousands of times. And then you're going to start doing it where you start putting emphasis on certain words. And when you do that, oh, you're going to set your pitch on fire. So that when you're in a situation, like I have 30-minute pitch, I have 30 minutes, I have 10 minutes, I have 90 seconds, 30 seconds, one minute, all in my mind at one time. And I know that if I'm going too far into this one, I can pull it back. And that only comes from practice, repetition, and muscle memory. That's why you practice so it sounds effortless when you do it. Not, not um, memorize. It sounds effortless. And that is when your pitch is so fly. People will always put their phone down because they're like, ooh, ooh, she's bad. And I know she got something I want to buy. <laughs> Precious, we're out of time for this segment. So wonderful to have you on the show. Where can people reach you and learn more about the pitch queen? You can learn more about me. And thank you so much, Barry, for having me. My website is www.perfectpitchesbyprecious.com. On Facebook, I am at Perfect Pitch P. On Twitter, I'm at Perfect Pitch P. And on LinkedIn, I am Precious L. Williams, Killer Pitchmaster. Please connect with me. Do not follow. And if you all want to check out my book, you can go to my website. My books are my books are all on my website. You can also get them on Amazon. And if you do want to work with me, please check out my website, www.perfectpitchesbyprecious.com. I look forward to speaking with you all and have a wonderful day. Thank you. This is AMA20, WCPT in Chicago. We'll be right back. Did you know that you can lose up to 5% on an invoice just because it's an international wire transfer? I know a lot of people are dealing with the same nonsense, and for small business owners, it hurts. I was dealing with the same painful fees, too, until I found Truly Financial. I like that they're the everyday global bank that business owners actually need. In fact, I like them so much that I'm partnering with them to bring you this special offer. Open a Truly Financial account and get a free copy of my new book, Change Masters, how to actually make the changes you already know you need to make. It's time to start saving on bank fees. No pain, all gain. Go to www.trulyfinancial.com Barry, and truly is spelled T-R-U-L-Y, and get a free copy of my new book, Change Masters. Stick around to get your small business unstuck. More of Small Business Radio with Barry Moles, now on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk. Well, it's the worst time of year again, and that for small business owners is called tax time. What are the best tax strategies for small business owners? My next guest is David Perez, properly known as Mr. Economy, is the number one tax strategist in America and the founder and CEO of Tax Plan Experts. 
Mr. Economy specialized in helping high-income earners and owners of hyper-growth businesses avoid or eliminate their tax liability by building their own economy. David, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. So, so when you're called Mr. Economy, when the economy is going well, it's great. You're a good guy. But when it's going bad, are you still Mr. Economy? Yeah, because I don't believe any actual economy matters except your own. And if you build your own economy, then you don't have to worry about what's going on anywhere else except for your house. So I love that concept. Tell us about building your own economy. So I believe that everyone should build something around them that's indestructible. And I believe that there's a few components of that. Number one, you definitely have to have unshakable health, health that can't be shaken during any pandemic or during any time of uncertainty. And that means taking care of your body. Number two, taking care of your wealth, which is obviously money makes things happen. And so if you don't pay attention to it, if you're not trying to grow it and make more of it, well, then you're going to have problems. And if you have enough of it, then typically during any recessionary period, you're not really worried. Actually, this is the best time for somebody to grow. Um, I talk about legacy. I think everything that we do every day is to produce something that can continue on after us. That's why I wrote a book. That's why I continue to push into the world. And, and I think we have to live by core values. This is part of your economy because I think that over time, we have seen many generations of wealth transitioned, but wealth doesn't perpetuate typically. It only goes two to three generations because true values aren't taught today. They're not taught. Kids typically aren't taught the same values as their parents, and obviously that continues until it's kind of this cycle of you, maybe you were born into wealth, and maybe you have wealth in your life, and then your kids have less wealth, and then their kids have less wealth, and then it has to start again because somebody lost all the values. So building your own economy is really truly taking everything into your own hands, taking full back control, and building something that is indestructible. So, David, how did you start on this quest? What about the way that you grew up or your life experiences made this important to you? Well, in a very short note, um, I was born a little unique or different, born in the 1980s where internet wasn't around and things were a little different. And uh, my parents, when I was born, noticed that I was different and so did the doctors. And I was born a little unique. Your audience can't see me, but I was born with something called albinism. And in the 80s, which which well, I'll tell you what it is, it means that I have black pigment in my skin, I have sensitivity to light, and I get burned. So for the most of your viewers who love going to the beach, a day, at the beach is, <laughs> a day at the beach is not fun for right. me. Uh, so for the majority of my life, I was very much coddled and taken care of. The doctors told my parents I had to be well taken care of. They told the school that. So what happened was I was put in special ed. I rode the little bus. I was pretty much I lived a great life because, you know, everybody wants to be taken care of. But I never really understood what that meant until my teens. And a few things happened to me. And I don't want to take a lot of time on this, but I will tell you this. In my mid-teens, I realized because my parents – they, they, they took me into the house one day and they sat me down with two young men and these men were in suits and they asked me a bunch of questions. And these questions all related to my medical condition. And after they were done, I asked my parents, what is this about? And they told me, David, this is for life insurance. And when they bought the life insurance policy on me that night, I was going to my bedroom. I see my mom and I said, mom, why do I need life insurance? Because in my mind, I'm thinking I'm dying because <laughs> you don't buy insurance on the 16 year old. If you ain't going to die. And so I'm like, man, I don't feel unhealthy. I don't feel like nothing's wrong with me and or anything. And my parent, my mom tells me just really nicely. She says, look, we're not going to be around forever. And my grandparents raised me. So that was, that's why they were saying this. They said, we're not going to be around forever, son. So if something happens to you, to, to us, whoever decides to take care of you, will have something to fall back on. Wow. And I, and I thought, 
they were not doing this in a disrespectful way. They were really just being proactive. But in my mind, I was like, I'm not, I'm not incapable. I'm not paralyzed. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with me in my mind. I don't feel wrong. And so it was a turning point in my life. And I realized then and there that I was never going to be a dependent again. And this independent idea came to me that it wasn't build your own economy. It was more at the time, independence, freedom, control. I needed to take back the control I had given away to everybody in my life to, to dictate my life. And so since then, I've worked my way through many struggles and challenges to be a very independent, very, you know, stable, secure, confident person that I wasn't all of my childhood. You know, one of the biggest things that small business owners, you know, struggle with all the time is, you know, how can I pay the least income taxes legally? And I always say that, you know, whatever you deduct uh, from your taxes through your business or personal is really between you, your accountant and God. What strategies do you have to make sure that people pay as little income tax legally as possible? Well, it, it all starts fundamentals, right? So many people are trying to go to their accountant or their, their tax professional, typically either late end of year or around filing deadlines. And they're like, hey, man, why do I owe this money or what's going on? And first off, it's already too late in most cases when you think about it. That's the number one reason why people overpay in their taxes is because they're just too late. They don't plan. And then the second thing, it goes down to fundamentals because the majority of people who overpay in taxes typically have poor record keeping or poor accounting, which is really translated into bookkeeping, bookkeeping. And, and that's because I'm not like a bookkeeper. But the point being is that the majority of deductions are missed in bookkeeping. And that's just fundamental. Like if I had to catch 80 percent of the reasons we can save somebody money, it's typically they just had poor accounting methods. And because of that, they missed asset depreciation that they could have taken. They missed deductions that could have been applied in a different way. And those have impacts not only on tax strategy, meaning paying less taxes, those have far implications past that because it, it impacts a, a business owner's borrowing ability, their ability to scale, it affects cash flow. So all of those things help or hurt rather. Uh, they help me because I can help you more, but they hurt the business owner. And that's really fundamental. I mean, I can get into advanced tax strategies here, but if I just told somebody, where do we start? Let's look at your bookkeeping. Let's just make sure that's up to date. Let's make sure that you have foundational principles in place. And let's make sure we leverage that to pay less taxes and have you the ability to scale and borrow money in the future. So, so David, give us some concrete examples about in bookkeeping, how you can pay less taxes. You mentioned you, know, you haven't depreciated, you haven't taken different expenses. What other kinds of things do people typically miss, especially small business owners? Well, typically, let, let's, um, well, first off, let's say a business comes to me and they're in the process of trying to grow, which most are, and maybe they're experiencing pretty decent growth over the last two years. Now they come to me and I say, okay, well, what's your biggest challenge? Why I pay overpay in taxes, or sometimes they're coming to me and they're saying, well, I, I don't know if I overpay, but I don't have the ability to borrow money. And I want to borrow money because I got to scale. So both of those are the biggest challenges. So I come to them and I say, okay, well, let's look at your bookkeeping. And the first thing that we notice is their bookkeeper is probably is most of the time putting assets as deductions. So for an example, you go buy a new Apple iMac computer or whatever it is, let's say it's 3000 bucks. And your accountant or your current bookkeeper, rather, or yourself are just labeling it as an expense. So you have an expense of $3,000. That's good. You got an expense. That means your income drastically reduces. Perfect. However, since it's an asset, because an asset has a useful life greater than a year, by defined by the IRS, what you can do in lieu of that is take it as an asset that you can depreciate, which still turns into a deduction. Don't get me wrong. It's the same thing. 
But the reason that you classify it as an asset is because whenever I want to go borrow money from the bank, the bank looks at depreciation on a tax return as an add back to income. Now I can now leverage that to borrow more money and scale my business. Now that's not simply tax strategy, that's finance, that scale strategy. So if you see somebody on that's going to buy a new phone, that's another example. Or if you buy a new vehicle, another example. Or if you buy equipment or machinery for your business, all of these typically are taken as deductions and not assets. And that's one of the biggest things I see every single day with our new clients. So so there's a trade-off there though, right, David? Because if you take it as an expense, you can take the expense all at one time, deducted from your income. If you, if you depreciate as an asset, it's a small amount over a period of time, but you can use that asset to borrow something. So it's a trade-off. No, not, necess- not necessarily because um, the IRS has special rules, which gives you either bonus or accelerated depreciation on assets. So typically you can accelerate the depreciation in year one as well. So it's the same dollar, the same dollar. So if, if an iPad cost you $2,000 or not an iPad, a computer cost you $2,000. Yeah, iPads don't cost $2,000 anymore, yeah, right? They will one day. Uh, <laughs> but, but a computer costs you two grand. You don't depreciate it over the course of five years. You can accelerate it in year one and take 2000 in year one. And you still have it as an asset instead of as an expense. It's Correct. a very interesting point. What other kinds of things do you think people miss? Um, I would say that they miss the opportunity to maximize investments as a way to lower your taxes. I think a lot of people have free cash flow and they spend it on luxury items or things that they don't need when they could put it into assets like real estate. Real estate's a great leverage point for for the ability to to lower your taxes. If you invest in assets like real estate or energy or or special programs um, such as let's call it easements or things, these are all strategies that you can invest into, put your money into. And they spit out typically losses, um, not because not because the, the entities or the business or the investment is actually a loss. It's typically because they're asset heavy. So back to the depreciation, use phantom deductions on depreciation of assets like real estate. They cause losses that can then offset your income and lower your tax liability. And so why don't you think more people, David, use these kinds of strategies? As you said, is it because they're due at the last minute and they're kind of in a panic? I think that the majority of people are last minute, not planners. And then the second thing is they don't have anybody in their corner that's, that's talking to them about this. And the reason they don't is the majority of tax professionals today are just professionals. They're not advisors like I am. And the second thing is that the majority of them have no clue exactly what to do. So even if they could, they wouldn't be able to tell them. And they're overworked, in most cases, taking on too many clients. So they can't fulfill. They have no no help or no support. So they just... They go to somebody who they've, just to be clear and honest, they've outgrown. If you're a fast-growing business owner, you're you're probably generating more revenue you've ever seen in your life, and you take it to your tax professional, and then they say, golly, you had a great year. Well, the reason they say that is because even they don't make that type of money. Right. So you- and they're just, just looking at the top line. It's the amount of money you keep. It doesn't matter how much you make. Well, well that does, that's what I mean. But the point being is it's like you're telling somebody – that doesn't make a lot of money, which is typically a tax professional. I hate to say that, but they don't. Maybe they make a few hundred grand, but if you're a really successful business owner and you're making, let's say your top line revenue is a million, two million, three million, which is pretty common nowadays, and you're telling somebody who makes $100,000, hey, can you tell me how to save money and maximize the deductions and and do all these things so I don't pay taxes? What's like giving the keys to a high-powered sports car to somebody who just, you know, knows how to drive a Fisher-Price push-along, you know? 
Like you, they don't have the skill sets to manage your money or understand your finances. And I believe that your tax professional should be your best advisor. They should be advising you on the best strategies to mitigate your tax situation, to increase your cash flow, and use that cash flow to invest in assets so you can build real wealth and build your own economy. So what you're saying is that we need a tax professional and we also need a tax advisor. I think it should be the same person. The same person. So how do you know you've got the right person? What question should I ask as a small business owner? Well, you should ask them, just go point blank. I think I'm overpaying. What are some of the ways that I can lower my tax liability this year? And if the only thing they say to you, which is nine out of 10, well, just go buy a, a new car or an SUV and we'll, that'll do it. Should lower everything. If that's the only strategy that they're implementing, there's over 67 that we use. If they can only give you one, and that's like the basic strategy, that's 101, then you're probably not working with a tax advisor. Do you think that most people in America pay too many taxes? I, I Well, that's that would be a very – 67% of Americans don't pay taxes. Um, typically, not because they they have some strategies. Typically, they don't make enough income, and the tax code is just favored in their direction. Um, there's 3% of the top income earners who don't pay taxes. And that's because they have strategies in place that mitigate the majority of their tax. Well, 100% of their taxes, typically real estate. And the remaining 30% cover the whole tax bill. And that's middle America. And yes, they do pay too much taxes. Well, David, I appreciate you being on the show. Where can people learn more about what you're doing? So you can go to my website, taxplanexperts.com, taxplanexperts.com. Or if you'd like to get a free copy of my book, you can go to my website, David. A, letter A in the middle, Perez.com. I thought it'd be like Mr. Economy. I'm, I'm, I'm picturing you like in this uh, spandex thing with a big E on your chest. That's not not what. Don't, don't make me go get it. <laughs> well, David, thanks for joining this week's radio show. And I want to thank everyone. I got to thank our sponsor, Truly Financial, banking that puts money back in your business. Get a free copy of my new book, Change Masters, How to Actually Make the Changes You Already Know You Need to Make by signing up for a free account at www.trulyfinancial.com. I want to thank our booking producer, Sarah Shaffrin, our in-studio producer, Lady B, our marketing manager, Courtney Gilchrist. You know, if you're serious about, if you're serious about being successful, it's hard to say that. In 2023, give me a call. I've set up a private line, 773-837-8250. Or email me at barry at molts.com. Remember, love everyone, trust a few, and paddle your own canoe. Have a profitable and passionate week. You can find Barry Moltz on the web at barrymoltz.com. Or more episodes of Small Business Radio at smallbizradioshow.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.